Hello everyone, how you doing? Welcome to the Side Notes Music Podcast. I'm your host Jonathan Laird, and I am pleased to be back with you for episode two of our podcast series. I want to apologize to everyone for the hiatus. I know that you guys have been waiting for this for a long time. We've had some special guests on the lineup. You know, conflicts happen during the the holiday season. You have Thanksgiving got Christmas if you're my family. You've got birthdays and just everything up the wazoo. It's a lot to juggle. But now that we have finally gotten past all of that, we're ready to get back in the swing of things and hit it hard. We do have some guests that are going to be on the itinerary in later episodes, but I thought while we were waiting for all of our scheduling conflicts to get in order, I wanted to take some time to talk about one of the things that I'm very passionate about, and that is recording. And I'm planning on doing a series where I can hopefully disseminate some information to recording enthusiasts, particularly ones that may be new to a lot of the terminology and want to get involved in it, figure out how to get the most out of their recording software or their analog gear. And we're going to be talking a little bit about microphones and equalization compressors, what all of this stuff means, and basically just kind of hopefully demystifying some of those topics. So if you're interested in learning some general principles behind all of that, this is for you. So there are different microphone techniques that you can utilize for different applications. And there are some general guidelines that I think you need to follow in order to be able to accomplish your goals. Using the right microphones for your applications is pretty important. There are different microphones that do different jobs very, very well. There's certain things to consider. Diaphragm types, polar patterns, their sensitivity. It's important to have access to a pretty wide range of mics. You may not be able to afford them all, but chances are somebody in your circle probably has one. Maybe talk to them. See if they'd be willing to loan you out one or rent one, or you may be able to track a little bit in their digs, and they'll be totally fine with it. You'll be surprised how many good-natured folks are out there. But going back to the miking, there are specific microphones that complement the characteristics of specific vocals, specific instruments, more so than others. Hypercardioid microphones, cardioids, figure eight patterns, omnidirectionals, all of these have different characteristics. Maybe you have a very harsh, edgy kind of sound to what you do. You want a specific kind of microphone that maybe tames those so they're not so extraneous in the mix. Maybe you have something with a bit of a darker characteristic, but in terms of the song that you're producing, maybe you want it brightened up a little bit. There are microphones that emphasize higher-end frequencies, so choosing the right tools for the job kind of matters here. Okay, depending on the source of your sound, you may be able to hit it hard with a tremendous amount of level without affecting it at all. Some of them won't take that kind of abuse. The SM57 is a middle-of-the-road go-to mic that can take a lot of pressure applied to it. There's a reason why it's the go-to for snare drums and guitar cabs. 
it can take a lot of aggression. So you can find a good one for like 80 bucks on the market. It does the job and it does it tremendously well. Okay, the next thing that we're going to discuss here is the concept of polar patterns. We touched on it a little bit earlier when we were mentioning the difference between cardioid omnis, etc. Maybe you're recording in an environment that isn't exactly the tightest room. You have a lot of reflections, maybe you've got air conditioner noise, you got people walking in the background, traffic noise, reflections from the windows, etc. In that case, if you want to prevent the leakage of all of those sounds into your mix, opt for something with a very, very tight directional pattern. A hypercardioid microphone doesn't bow out in quite the way that a regular cardioid mic would. All right? When we're talking about cardioid mics, the reason that they're called cardioids is because the field of area that they hit is shaped like a heart. It goes beyond 180 degrees, so it doesn't exactly flatline. It bows out just a little bit in front of the vocalist or maybe the guitar player or whatever. But a hypercardioid mic will tighten up that array a little bit, so it won't pick up so many different things in an environment. So studying polar patterns is very important when you're trying to choose microphones. If you're trying to get mid-side processing, which is a very cool thing, you can actually develop stereo sound just by the placement of microphones. One of the tricks that I like to use is when I'm playing with a guitar, an acoustic guitar, in a room that I happen to enjoy the natural acoustics of, maybe I'll get a cardioid mic in just a few inches, maybe three or four inches in front of it. I'll, I'll position that microphone directly in front of it at the 12th fret. Okay, this seems to be the best balance between capturing the bass end articulation of the guitar towards the body and being able to pick up the sound of the fingers on the fretting hand. But it's not a hard and fast rule. You have to experiment a little bit to be able to find the sweet spots. Now, on the other side of that, Maybe you stack immediately on top of it a figure eight pattern mic aimed sideways from you. A figure eight polarity is a capsule that's split in two. It captures low mid-range and high mid-range frequencies, depending on which side of the capsule you're on. And this is relevant to people who want to record things with a wider stereo image because it allows you to maybe pan that signal hard left and hard right and when you mix it in with the mono signal of the cardioid pattern it creates a wider fuller stereo image it applies to acoustic guitars again it applies to drum kits so if you're looking for a monster stereo mix and good stereo spread, you could do a lot worse than just picking out a nice cardioid, a nice figure eight mic, and then adjusting the panning, and that can take care of your stereo image a lot of times. Okay, another thing that we're going to talk about is proximity effect. Proximity effect is basically what it sounds like. It's, it's the proximity of the microphone in relation to the source that it's capturing. Typically, when you're recording a guitar cab, I like to have the SM57 right up next to the grill of the guitar cab. I think it provides more clarity. 
let's say I'm recording with an omnidirectional as well because I'm in a pretty cool studio environment where the acoustics are just fantastic and I don't want to miss the monster sound of that room. I might place an omnidirectional mic in that room to capture a huge wide sound from that cab so I can have a wider proximity. It can tolerate a lot of the low end that you would achieve from moving it further and further away from the source. At the end of the day though, mic placement is all about using your ears. Adjust the array. If you're aimed towards a specific instrument, maybe a saxophone, the bell of the instrument may not be where you get the best sound, depending on the mic. Maybe aim it a little bit closer towards the keys. Adjust accordingly. Does it sound better focused in directly? Maybe you want to angle it up or down. Maybe you want to move it a little bit further away in order to make it fatter. There is no substitution for an engineer's ears when it comes to mic placement. So, move it left and right, up and down, closer and further away, and use your ears to determine where the sweet spots are. That is one of the best pieces of advice that I can give you on recording effective tracks. Now, there are some tips. Shore has written this on their blog, as well as Studio Buddy, which was a great resource. They haven't updated it for a long time, but I think that some of the insights still hold true. When you're trying to find a sweet spot with the absence of a microphone, cover one ear, cup your hand, and move yourself up and down, back and forth, left to right, whatever, <laughs> until you find a place that you think is the most pleasing to your ears. Now for a stereo miking situation, you'll actually want to use both ears. Cut both ears and, and repeat the process. Of course, with all of this said, I don't think we can ever really shortchange the value of singers and players who actually know how to sing and how to play their instruments. They contribute a lot to the overall sound and the fidelity of the tracks. And it's always refreshing for an engineer when they get people that actually are skilled at their craft. So if you're a musician, take time to discipline yourselves, grow musically, cultivate disciplines that are going to further you along as a vocalist or as an instrumentalist. Next thing is find the right rooms that you want to play in. If you have access to a room that sounds remarkably well for a particular track, use it. The room and the space plays a big part in the overall presentation of a track in an arrangement. Having said that, convolution is a game changer. Convolution allows us to take plugins like the Waves R verb or the IR, the impulse response utility. Logic has a version of it called Space Designer. Logic is my DAW of choice, but convolution is basically, in this sense, the art of capturing the acoustics of a physical environment and trapping them into a software plugin. So if you record vocals in a dry environment, but maybe you want something epic like you're singing in a cave or a cavern, and that tends to lend itself to the song that you're performing, you have the option of grabbing that in a plugin because these things are captured in those environments. So it's not like your track is being presented 
in a cave is the physical sound of the cave being applied to your track. So if you can't get access to an optimum acoustical environment, there are workarounds, and you can make it work. If you can't get good sounding tracks out of, say, maybe a particular kind of instrument, I have quite a few acoustic guitars around here. Maybe one of them isn't really cutting it. That's okay. Move to a secondary. See if it does any better. It is important when you're going to be playing for an arrangement to make sure that your gear is properly taken care of. Guitar players like me, change out your strings. Clean your fretboards. Clean your instruments. A lot of the dirt and gook and all of the stuff that collects on your instruments can affect the tone and the sound quality of what it is you're tracking. Now for a bit on tracking individual parts versus tracking the entire ensemble live. Tracking individual parts gives you flexibility to record the hottest tracks possible. I like leveling those tracks as hot as possible because I think you have to do a lot less dynamics processing that way. They're leveled properly so you don't have to worry about capturing the source signal as much. If your level is too low, when you come to boost it, you're going to pick up a lot of extraneous things in the background. So take the time, set your levels up properly. Now as far as tracking an ensemble is concerned, the important thing to do in that situation is to try to achieve balance. Make sure that people have a comfortable headphone mix. If you are investing in an environment where people can do live tracking in real time as an ensemble, it's good to invest in a few things. Have some decent quality headphones for your musicians to listen to. They can get comfortable with the mix. Have a headphone mixer. That way, when you're trying to adjust these things into sins for everybody, you can attenuate it based on their desires. You know, I want to have more kick or whatever. But be able to level these things properly so that you can capture a good sound at the source without the aid of processing. And finally, one of the last things that I would like to add to this conversation about miking is the concept of making things sound big. Now... I said before that I'm an advocate of tracking things as hot as possible. That being said, when it comes to listening to things on playback, I love to mix and listen to things at as low of a level as possible. You know, generally about speaking level. Okay, there are a few reasons for this. Your ears, like your feet when you're running, can fatigue after doing a lot of work. They will get tired less quickly if you do your mixes predominantly on low levels, and when you get to a place where you think that things are getting glued together very nicely and you're getting closer to home, then you can experiment with hearing how it sounds at differing degrees of volume. But spare your ears because you're going to be able to hear things with a lot more clarity if you mix at lower levels. And finally, this is sort of a thing that I think is kind of counterintuitive. Everybody's focused on making things big. Big guitars, big drums, big vocal sound. Generally, the way to capture a huge sound is actually counterintuitive to what you think it might be. The idea that people have for getting huge sound is to boost everything, make it bigger, make it fatter. In the next installment of the audio portion of this podcast, we're going to be talking about equalization and compression. 
going to be talking about gain structure and actually how subtracting from the equation can focus your sound and make it sound bigger in the mix than boosting. It works very, very differently than a lot of people might think. But more on that later. So that about wraps it up for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the Side Notes Music Podcast. I'm Jonathan Laird. You can visit us on the web at www.jonathanlaird.net. Or if you have a question or a comment, feel free to drop me a line at jonathan at jonathanlaird.net. Until then, play it loud, everybody.